Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoy today's safety talk. So I am lucky enough to introduce Mark. Mark is the safety applications engineer and project manager with Integrated Mill Systems, IMS, a control and information systems integrator in Willoughby, Ohio. In this role, Mark engages with manufacturing clients on machine safety applications, facilitates risk assessments, develops risk reduction, design specification, and conducts machine safety educational workshops. Prior to his current position, Mark was with Rockwell Automation for 31 years, where he held various positions with responsibilities for automation and safety product solutions throughout the globe. Mark earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in management from Malone College in Canton, Ohio, a Certificate of Industrial Distribution Management from Texas A&M University, and is certified by TUV Rhineland in Functional Safety and Cybersecurity. Welcome, Mark. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And as a resident of Portage County as well, I live in Aurora, so I'm happy to present. And, and hopefully this is valuable information that uh, will help our community you know, thrive as well, as well as the employers and employees. So we're going to cover the considerations, safety considerations for robots in manufacturing. I'm going to you know, dive right into some of the you know, meat of it. Once I started doing some research for this presentation and, and you know, there's a ton of information on robots, the robot industry and stuff like that. Essentially, a lot of it is irrelevant, you know, except for a couple here. I just thought I'd throw some of these out here. This one, it's relevant here in that studies show that the vast majority, 88%, are probably going to have a robot. If they don't have one already, will begin to use robots in the very near future. So, you know, this topic of uh, robotic safety essentially is relevant to, to everybody. The reasons robots are becoming more prevalent in industry uh, are listed here. Recent developments in technology, they're certainly smarter uh, than they ever have been, even uh, utilizing adaptive and you know uh, artificial intelligence. The merging and integration of advanced vision systems allow these robots to, quote, see as well. All of these robots are becoming much more sophisticated internally, but then the GUIs make these things a whole lot easier to use. There's more prevalence of integrators and, and people that can help with the integration and use of robots as well. These robots, things are taught in school. At, at Rockwell, I actually worked with one of the largest robot education facilities in the world. It happens to be in China, but they had 34,000 robots uh, in Chinese elementary, junior high, and you know, middle school and high school uh, classrooms. Uh, teaching robotics and manufacturing out there. Robots are getting a whole lot more cost-effective to buy. Even You can even lease them now. Robots as a service is a thing. And many more industries are using them as well. So the, the types of applications that are being used, once, once a particular industry begins to utilize robots in a particular manner, that opens up an entire industry to the robot uh, by the robot manufacturers. So thus they begin to market to those industries and rapidly expand uh, utilization of that technology 
in, in those. So for instance, food and bev, it was not a traditional uh, robot industry, much less so than say automotive, but uh, the food and bev industry is very heavily investing in, in uh, robotic a- applications, you know, as well. So as of recent, you know, news and stuff, supply chain resilience, part of what we were talking about before this, this aired was, uh, you know, the difficulty of hiring employer, employ, uh, employable people, um, and keeping them retained. So even the, the concepts of what work is, is beginning to transform as well. What type of work do you want a person to do or versus what you want a robot to do or a machine to do? So, um, what's more and, and use humans for things that are much more human, you know, humanistic type of things. So anyway, those are some of the reasons in there. The other one that I thought was significant in here is, is where robots are, even though the U.S. is in the top five, number two through four combined still don't equal the number of robots that are in number one in China. Uh, and those are rapidly growing, uh, all of them. Uh, but China still, you know, continues to expand, which is an interesting thing. I think they, they, maybe the general concept of, of China is that They've got so many people there that well, why would they want to use robots? You know, if you could just hire people, but the cost of labor in particularly in Eastern China is grown and risen to such an extent now that when you look at what it takes to manufacture in China, the total cost of, of manufacturing and then shipping a good to the other parts of the world, some studies show that the Delta is only up 5%. So do I want to risk, you know, maybe exposing my intellectual property into China, I'm going to manufacture in China to save 5% or am I going to manufacture in the United States? So robots become, you know, an inherent part of that manufacturing strategy, if you will. So they are important. Um, there it's inevitable. If, if we're, if you're not thinking about robots, it's very soon you will be. If you have robots in place, you probably have dealt with the safety applications of them. And, the, the traditional robots are, are, you know, that you'll recognize these are, 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 you know, these have been around for 30 years or so, these types of robots. I believe the first uh, industrial robot was installed, and I think in 1962, I think it was the, one of those cylindrical robots in, uh, in uh, a General Motors plant in, in a, you know, normal manufacturing process. But, you know, since then, there's a variety of them. So when you think of industrial robots, you're thinking of these type of machines that are programmable. They're, you know, completely flexible in terms of how they move and, and, and program as well. Uh, the recent adoption of what some term cobots or collaborative robots, if you will, uh, is growing rapidly. It's still a very small niche, but these are robots that have some inherent and intrinsically safe, uh, ratings and, and capabilities to be able to sense the, the touch of a human or the force placed upon them that inherently inside the robot controller and there are sensors on the robot itself that make them much more compatible to working amongst humans. So you'll see some of these, we'll talk a little bit about more of these later uh, when we get into some of the standards and stuff, but some of the things that we'll you know begin to consider you know, from a safety perspective is, you know, how are these how are people interacting with these robots? So there's a scale um, that then dictates basically how are humans collaborating with these 
these machines, if you will, and what type of control systems are inherent in the, in the controller itself, in the robot controller itself, and then how much do you need to bolt on that interface with the other aspects of the entire work cell system. So when you see kind of this scale here, this is somewhat of an accepted sort of like staging or step of where you'll see collaboration. The, the most traditional one is where we have a robot cell. And we typically, during normal operations, we'll, we'll guard around the entire thing and we'll keep people away from it and totally separate people. There's no collaboration or interaction, you know, with the robot during normal operation. The most traditional way that we're going to, that, and, and these, this has been around for quite some time. It's still a collaborative. It's not a cobot, but the most collaborative ways we're doing it today are these two here, where we're going to either coexist or we're going to have a sequential application, you know, operation where a human may overlap with the robot work area itself, or we're going to keep, still keep them separate. Uh, and then we're probably going to sense people, you know, in, in, uh, proximity to those robots, and then the robot is going to do something based on the proximity of that person. Same with this, but we're going to be working together. And then we're going to have, a, these are these are where some of the cobot uh, applications come in to play, where there's some more intrinsically safe elements and features and capabilities within the robot controller itself versus a separate controller, uh, say a separate safety controller that's interfaced with it. So these are some of the areas where, you know, we're going to cooperate and share some of the workload uh, simultaneously when a human and a robot are both handling some piece of equipment, tooling or something like that. Okay. So that's sort of the, the gauge and in, 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 uh, uh, the step levels of collaboration and cooperation. Regardless of how that's all going to happen, we're still looking at the what you typically would do anyway with any sort of work cell, with any machine, we're going to try to design a workspace and try to understand how will people be interfacing with this machine. And if you think of the robot as just a machine, it, it really does fit, you know, that kind of concept that you would normally do this anyway and take the safety considerations for your machines are not a whole lot different for safety considerations for robots. So this isn't something where you have to scrap your normal, you know, your machine safety program itself and start all over again. Rather, you really just kind of have to adopt some of the aspects about safety with robots with safety with machines. Now, many of the reasons that you would you know, be interested in this would be compliance, compliance to the laws, regula regulations of the land here in the U.S. obviously is OSHA. Um, interestingly enough, OSHA still does not have any specific laws uh, to, uh, and we'll call it standards, but with the, when, it, when OSHA says standards, they're basically saying the laws, the rules and regulations. There's really nothing that is inherently different about robots versus regular machines. There are some publications um, for Typically, these are these are made public, but they're published for inspectors, OSHA inspectors. So there is a, a technical manual that has a particular chapter on hazards associated with robots that uh, you can most certainly get. It's on it's online, and you can you can read through it yourself. Um, written, I, I couldn't find a date as to when this was written, but it looks like it was written sometime in the nineties. So way back in the nineteen hundreds, let's put it that way. So it's it's old. 
You don't get much help from other elements. Again, none of these are laws, but some further guidance. Um, the CDC, Department of Human Services, Health and Human Services, has a, another division, um, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. Um, they pu- actually put together a smaller subcommittee called CORE, but it's it's focused on uh, robot applications, and um, they essentially put this group together in uh, late uh, 2017. There hasn't really been anything inherent to robots that have come out other than some things on ergonomics and stuff like that, but they really haven't produced a whole lot. I think this got kind of sidelined by the CDC's more recent pandemic issues and, and whatnot. We were talking about budgets and stuff like that and priorities. So I think the CDC's, uh, this is a division or group of the C, you know, from the CDC. Anyway, Bottom line is there's not a whole lot going for it uh, specific to robots. So what you then default to in terms of what do you need to be compliant to when you're installing and using robots, it's the same laws and rules and regulations that have been around for 50 years since OSHA came into, into play. The only thing about this is the obviously everybody re- would recognize this. This is the general duty clause. Uh, if OSHA doesn't have anything specific that they can um you know, fine you or, or find you a non-compliant for, or they could find something associated with this. I highlight when I do a workshop on, on this, when we talk about laws and regulations and compliance and stuff like that, I usually want to touch on that one, those couple of words right there, recognized hazards. Recognized is not necessarily, and, and what some of the myth is, is that if I walk out of my plan and I'm not aware of some hazard, then I'm covered. You know, like that is some sort of defense, that ignorance is a defense, and that is a myth. The The real interpretation of the word recognized hazard is that these are recognized throughout industry. So specific to robots, there are recognized hazards associated with robots that the rest of industry recognizes, and it's the obligation of anybody using that type of equipment to also recognize those hazards and address them. So that's how the general duty clause is applicable, you know, to robots. Specific to anything deeper than this, we get into the very, very general subpart O of the CFR 20, uh, 29, Code of Federal Regulation 29. This is a part of the uh, Occupational Safety Administration's, uh, you know, element. These are the laws basically governing machine safety. Really very general aspects around general uh, safety guarding and, and whatnot. Subpart J is our, of course, our uh, lockout tagout kind of laws. This is, this is a much more comprehensive than the general sort of aspects of these laws. But bottom line is these are the laws that you would be compliant to. And if, if you weren't, these would be the, you know, the, the, the uh, ones that are associated with any sort of fine or violation. It, it's easy to boil these things down, though. It, it gets much more simpler if we follow and essentially what, what OSHA is basically established with all of that stuff. And there are these very two basic rules. If we are going to access a machine, you turn it off. If you're going to run a machine, you keep people away from it. And we know these as lockout, tagout, or you know, control of hazardous, uh, isolation of hazardous energy and machine guarding. These are the these are the rules. These are the ones that if there's going to be a violation or a fine or a citation associated with it, they citations would come under these elements of it. 
Of course, we know if, and OSHA knows, if that these rules are followed to the nth degree, we're going to probably end up with a machine that is unusable, unaccessible, or it, it takes so hard, it takes so much uh, time out of normal operation that it makes it economically infeasible you know, to implement all your lockout tagout or you know, guarding to some degree. So um, that's where the minor servicing exception becomes an important aspect of this as well. <clears throat> so this is alternative methods, alternative methods to lock up tag out, or if you're using a movable guard, I can move this guard away. I can, I can provide access to this machine with power on. That's basically what the exception is talking about specifically. Whether we're using robots or not, the law is exactly the same. The, this minor servicing exception uh, has not been altered whatsoever in taking into considerations robots. We still have to follow all three of these elements. If we're not going to lock out, tag out, if we're going to put, a, we're going to remove a guard and provide access, we have to, and we're going to provide alternative means to reduce risk. I have to be compliant and I have to show justification for all three of these elements. I have to, one, say it is definitely during normal operation, I have to provide access to this machine with power on. I have to prove that it is Every time I do this, it is routine, repetitive, and integral to the application of the machine and operation of the machine. I can't run this machine without doing that. And then whatever alternative means that I use in here too, it has to be just as effective as say lockout tagout or a fixed guard. So lockout tagout and fixed guarding is still the default, whether you're using a machine or a robot, it's still the same. If you need help in trying to understand, can I allow access with power on, uh, IMS has a, a process as um, we can help you guide you through this. Uh, I've got a, uh, a document that comes very, very handy if you ever need it in the future to document your decisions, document the practicability and justification for doing something other than lockout tagout or something other than a machine guard that you can essentially capture and walk through the process, the decision-making process that proves that I made the best decision possible with the information available at the time. I made this, this decision that I'm not going to lock out or I'm not going to put this guard on. I'm going to do something, something else. So the practicability and justification, you know, of, of this stuff. So again, that is no different than if you're using a robot, if I'm going to provide access to this robot cell, I have to go through that justification process, otherwise lock it out, okay? Now, if I am gonna do something alternative means, this is where the magic happens, essentially where I can improve productivity substantially. To do that and to still remain compliant, I'm gonna remain compliant and show and document that I was compliant with these voluntary standards. Standards are grouped by these kind of aspects into these kind of types. Uh, whether I'm going to assess risk, uh, the product itself that I'm going to use in this case, you know, what is the, what's the standard that this robot is compliant to? Then there are application standards um, for the entire, that, that represent the entire work cell, not just how am I going to install or run this robot, but everything else that goes along with it. And the performance of the circuits, for instance, that I'll be using I have to prove those, and then I, once I install them, I also have to validate those. Is my engineering correct? Is it installed and 
are my engineering assumptions and my assumptions about the application correct? So I have to document all of this stuff. And if I follow these standards, I can certainly be compliant. The nice thing about it is this is the, the list of standards that if you if you have anybody that is doing engineering alternative means or putting in safety solutions in a plant, this would be the, the just the basic library and not just owning these standards, but they're going to be tattered and well-worn and notes and stuff like that. But this was, these are basically the Bibles that you would follow in order to know that you're compliant. And you can see the ones in red are the ones that I listed as specific to robots or things associated with robots. The granddaddy of them all, uh, the Robot Industry Association has been publishing uh, 15.06 for a number of years, over a couple decades now. The current rev is 20, uh, 2012, but the, they're actually revving it. It was supposed to have been late last year, this year, but kind of a lot of, like a lot of things, COVID kind of messed those things up. But if you do have the standard and you can follow the standard, then you're in pretty good shape. The other standard that's out there, the sort of the major consensus standard is from the uh, International Standards Organization, ISO 10218. Uh, it comes in two parts. What RIA, along with ANSI, and sort of what ANSI, what, the, what ANSI likes to do is take all of these, a bunch of disparate international standards and absorb them into one comprehensive standard. And that's basically what 15.06 does. It took both parts of 10 to 18 and combined them into one document in, in, holistically. I mean, almost word for word. And basically, this is like the national, the U.S. adoption of this international standard is through the ANSI and RIA. Part one on both of those is part one is, is specific to robot suppliers, vendors, people who are making robots. Is it compliant to, you know, the international safety standards? Uh, did they build this robot properly? Is it designed properly? Part two is for everybody else. People installing, commissioning, owning, running, maintaining, moving, you know, integrating robots. That's what part two is for both of those. ANSI and RIA also produce these TRs, our technical uh, reports. Those are subcommittees and deep down, deep dives on particular type of topics here. In this case, R15.306 is the risk assessment document. And, and at IMS, we use this for wh whether it's a robot or not. We typically uh, use uh, 15.306 for any type of machine. I'll show you why. Some of the other ones, uh, the technical reports here also, this is another good example of what RIA would do would be to pull in all of these international standards and pull all of that together into a much more comprehensive and uh, readable document. One that for companies that may have ha haven't uh, installed robots today, there's even a technical report on existing robot applications. This is assuming that the robot, uh, what do you what do you do with an existing robot application if the standards have somewhat moved on? You know, what do you do with those at this point? So uh, this most certainly helps. You know, help you deal with all of that. But bottom line is whether, you know, regardless of what standards organization you're following when it comes to functional safety, the nice thing about functional safety is that regardless of kind of where you are in the world, the rules are almost always the same. So this is the uh, machine safety lifecycle. All of these standards organizations basically follow this cycle. That's what all these standards basically end up doing. So it, it most certainly 
you know, helps you uh, sort of walk through how do I apply safety stuff that's out there and remain compliant. The risk assessment is most certainly the most important part of it. I'll just walk through some of this to give you some examples. We'll kind of point out some of the areas that uh, you would have to be that that are pertinent to or take special considerations when you're doing robots. But it's basically it's the same step. I'm going to follow this flowchart in here. I'm going to basically try to identify all the tasks and hazards. I'm going to score, come up with a risk assessment score. I'm going to try to determine then whether that risk is acceptable or not, and then decide, do I need to do something about it or am I good to go? I just kind of, you know, validate it from there. When I'm working on uh, whether it's robots or any sort of machine, determining and, and finding, this is probably the hardest part is finding everybody who would be affected by that machine. And that's the term, affected. Anybody associated with this machine, anybody affected by it, even, even bystanders, anybody that's, that would come walking by this, this plant. We were just at an application yesterday about people that have nothing to do with this machine other than they're walking by it. And that turned into uh, a safety incident uh, because of that. They weren't even supposed to be around the machine, but they were. So anyway, finding everybody who's associated with that machine, understanding what they're, how they're affected by this machine, how are they using it, what are the specific tasks associated with it. So this is where I'll get into then, you know, what type of robot and how am I going to be interacting with that machine. So detailing those, those tasks and functions are a key part of assessing the risk, and it's a key part of the very first part of it. Specifically, when I'm coming to robots, um, some of the, uh, I guess, new inherent hazards and aspects about, you know, recognized aspects about it, uh, were actually documented in a technical report in 806 uh, that talks about, you know, how can a human, what type of injuries and what kind of effects of blunt force trauma or how many newtons of and, and speed associated with it can, can damage human flesh and bone. So some considerations about, you know, sharp edges versus dull edges. How fast is this robot going? How fast can it go? How fast should it go? And how fast could it go? Where are the people associated with it? The angle of attack, you know, all of that stuff. Where is it going to hit you? Do you get hit in the shin, which we've all bashed our shin. It sure hurts a lot more than if you got, you know, hit in the more fleshy part of your body. But uh, so a lot of work recently that has been done on that. Some examples of things that you would have to be considered about, you know, what type of pinching is going on. Certainly a different pinch if it's going to be between two pieces of sharp metal versus in this case here, you know, between two tires mounted here. If I am getting hit by, by something, am I, you know, how fast is it going to go? And, and is there going to be something behind me that prevents me from responding to that hit? Will I get just get knocked over or am I somehow going to be hit harder? So some of the element aspects about it certainly have all of the normal machine safety concerns, you know, what types of injuries and hazards that we're talking about, you know, amputations and crushing and, and uh, you know, all the horrible things that can happen to a human body. All of that has to be considered when you're talking about not just the robot itself and how it's working and the machine around it. But as I design this work cell, take into consideration you know, what you're putting around it. If these are, these are walls or gates or, you know, fencing and stuff like that, I can certainly get hurt if this robot goes out of control and I've got a person between, say, a post holding up a safety fence 
where's the escape routes? Where's my e-stop in here? Um, if I'm working in this area and something goes wrong and I want to hit an e-stop, do I have to run next to a hazard? Do I have to run by a hazard to get the e-stop? So those are some of the considerations. Also further, what type of item is the robot, say, gripping and moving around? Is it sharp? Is it big? It's not just the you know travel of the arm itself, but the extension of the product that it might be gripping at the time. Also, you know, what happens if the, the end effect or the gripper lets go or it moves too fast, centrifugal force, a part goes flying. So do I need to design the gating and stuff like that to retain items that might be accidentally thrown by the by a robot? And that's just the mechanical stuff. You still have to go through essentially the, all of the aspects of, uh, you know, searching out hazards as well, finding all those hazards. That is, you know, the other difficult part uh, about trying to discover hazards. If you look at the safety life cycle as well, you see that it's a continuous thing. It's almost guaranteed you're going to miss hazards when a risk assessment is done. That's why you want to do it on a regular basis. Um, some of the more mature companies will actually reassess risk on a weekly, sometimes monthly basis. That's pretty extreme. Most I've ever heard in general is about once a year. Some companies every six months or something like that. But essentially, what you're going to end up with a risk assessment is a documentation of, of where we're going to have people and hazard sort of collaborations and, and correlations. Inherent specifically a type of operation specific to robots is the teaching aspect of it as well. Try to understand how, where the teaching is going to be done. Is it inside the cell? Is it outside the cell? Is it remote? Am I guiding this? Or do I have to get really close and look and position this robot perfectly? You know, and, and where is that teacher going to be? So who that teacher is, the training uh, associated with it. Are they familiar with, um, you know, the, the teaching of it as well? Uh, there's probably a remote pendant that you'll take inside of there. All of those typically today, there's probably not much concern about them being compliant. But uh, do, do we know how to use them? Am I going to teach at a slow speed, which is like T1, the teaching one speed? Or do I have to teach and test things and, and look and see if I, I've got a... Uh, you know, at, at high speed, that would be teaching at T2. Essentially, you're going to end up just like you would with a any sort of machine. You're going to end up with a documented risk assessment where you're going to have every person task, every step of that task, and a hazard associated with it. Each one of those should be a line item on the risk assessment. We'll assess the risk. We'll try to measure risk in three areas here. One, inherent, what's the underlying risk? Then I measure it again with the existing measures and protections that are there. If I find those existing measures are sufficient, I come up with a, a rating and I go, okay, that's good. It's acceptable to me. Then I can skip the third one. I don't even have to do anything. But if I find it unacceptable, I'm going to do something. What am I going to do about it? And then I'm going to measure that risk again. What's the residual risk looking for? And most certainly, if I'm going to do a risk assessment, I want to do this with a cross-functional team. I want operators, maintenance people. I want cleaning people. I want everybody, the engineers, everybody associated with this, all pitching in and chiming in on what this risk is going to be. Specific to robots, we actually use this particular standard to measure risk called estimating risk. The risk estimation is where I'm going to get something where it's negligible, low, medium, high, or very high. This is the decision tree based on the three elements of risk, severity and probability. Probability is broken down into two 
elements, exposure, and avoidance. These are essentially three levels of severity. Severity one means I got hurt, but I didn't have to go outside to the hospital first aid essentially or nothing. You know, I've got, I'm fine. It's an S1. Severity level two, I went to the hospital, broke a bone, but I'm going to fully recover. S3 means I, uh, I'm never going to be the same again. This is an amputation or some, somewhere where, you know, the human activity is somehow curtailed, uh, including all the way up until death. Um, so exposure is basically, um, once, uh, uh, more than, more than or less than, uh, once a, a shift or once a day. Uh, if it's more than once a day, I'm E2. If I'm less than once a day or less than once a shift, I'm E1. And then the avoidance part of it is a, a key part of it as well. This is usually what, what when we try to reduce risk, we're going to probably try to reduce prob, uh, the probability elements, exposure or avoidance, um, when we uh, you know try to improve something. But uh, this is going to be based on the uh, estimated speed of a robot, 250 millimeters a second, somewhere around 9 to 10 inches a second. And also considerations of the application is the scape away from the hazard or do I have to go you know, through the hazard to get it? So anyway, you're going to end up with a score in here, an estimation of, of uh, and, and as I go through this, I'm going to do a sort of an iterative thing. If I've got a, a hazard estimation and I'm not satisfied with it, I'm going to try to reduce it with a hierarchy of control and do uh, something about it. So this is another area where the the value of these RIA standards help. It actually gives some guidance in, to say, here's what I'm going to do about it based on the risk assessment. So in this case here, if I've got something very high to medium, I'm going to have to do some one of these are the recommended. You shall do something with controls or I'm going to re-engineer something. I'm going to I'm going to take some sort of action here that's not administrative controls, not based on sort of compliance by human you know, policy or procedure in here. If I'm going to use a control system, there's further guidance that directs you directly to how am I going to design a circuit? Control engineers will understand these letters and numbers in here. The higher the letter, the higher the number, the more expensive, the more sophisticated, the more complicated the control circuit is. It has to do with redundancy, duality, and monitoring of the circuit. So performance level E and D are, are much higher, harder to attain, much more expensive and sophisticated to own than, say, a performance level B or C. If you've got a robot in here, it's going to assume that you've got uh, perform, uh, performance level D. This is a, actually, a, uh, I failed to mention the, the standard is uh, ISO 13849. But uh, essentially, if you have not done a risk assessment, and OSHA comes in and, and looks at the circuit, you're going to have to show evidence that it's something called control reliable. Control engineers will probably know what that is. That's It has all of these attributes associated with it. Basically, it says if something of the safety rated part of the control system fails, it's going to at least fail to a safe state. It won't fail to a hazardous state. And it can handle at least one fault, but not, not several. I know I'm flying through this really quick, but... I want to just touch on if you've got these type of cobot cage-free applications in here, these are the these are the sort of the ways that uh, more modern robots, these those cobots, uh, are, are inherently being used. Where I've got I've got people in proximity to, you know, to those hazards. You still really still need to do a risk assessment to assess 
you know, what is the level of risk associated with that? And then uh, you're still going to need to do something associated with reducing that risk. It's going to be a layer of that of risk, essentially. You're going to layer on safeguards, complementary measures. And very important, one of the standards does say that the information for use, once the integrator is done installing this, it is an absolute requirement that the user of the robot use the information that was used you know, by that robot uh, installer. So again, we're still at the risk assessment part of it, and we get down to the point, and this is where the residual risk aspect of it and the evaluation of risk comes down to the user to say, okay, I'm good to go. I accept this whatever level of risk there is, whether it's a robot or a machine, I understand what they are and I'm okay with it. I'm going to document it or I'm going to keep going and trying to reduce the risk a little bit more. But I just wanted to really kind of reiterate that this machine safety lifecycle, regardless of what standard you're using, whether you've got a machine, whether you've got a robot, it is almost identical with some considerations that we just kind of covered here. But the nice thing about this is that if you've got a machine safety policy and program in place, you don't have to scrap it. You just have to take a few other additional considerations into, into consideration with the, uh, the type of robot that you've got and how people are collaborating with it, and you're good to go. So with that, whirlwind tour <laughs> jamming in a lot of information. Hopefully there's some questions or better yet, some comments, what I like to call bullshit flags. If you saw something in there that you thought was, uh, you'd like to chime in on, I'm sure there are people uh, out here that have robots and have, uh, you know, that are in the audience that might have some thoughts or concerns or considerations about those. So with that, I'm going to open it up to questions. Excellent information. I learned a ton. I took a bunch of notes, so it was very good. So a couple things, machine guarding in general, I know it's on the, the ownership is on the owner of the equipment to make sure that it is safe and guarded. Is that the same thing for robots? Do the owners of the machines have to do that? Or is it the manufacturers that supply that guarding and safety? Yeah, you know, we, we get into this when um, I conduct these machine safety workshops and we get into the aspect of compliance. The myth is that the in the United States, it's the end user that's responsible for machine safety. And from a pure legislative and I'll say the criminal law side of this, that's absolutely true. The laws of the U.S. basically say it's up to the employer, you know, the person using that. The thing, though, those are the sort of the, I'll say the criminal courts, you know, that would cover legislative aspects of it. The laws are all basically talking about that as well. Whereas if you look at Europe and Europe, this is where the myth is that, that it's the OEM who's responsible for safety. And, and in fact, it's both in Europe as well. They're both equally. The difference here in the U.S., we rely on the civil courts much more. 99% of the time when there's a safety incident that occurs at a manufacturer, if workman's comp doesn't satisfy the plaintiff, if you will, the legal route that typically go, it goes through is through the civil courts. And most of the time it involves the OEM, the integrator, anybody who was involved in that machine. And because the, the legal route that the, the legal system takes it through down the civil court is what's called a product liability suit. It's much easier for a plaintiff to get reparations for something 
if in, in a product liability suit because the proof of you know, the burden of proof is on the machine supplier versus if you try to sue, say, your employer, the burden of proof is on you. You have to prove negligence. When I sue a product, sue it as a product liability suit, all I have to do is, is prove that there was a inherently, there was a alternative safer design. That could be something as simple as a guard on there. And I can prove that, you know, evidence that, you know, I had a defect or a hazard on this machine. I had evidences, somebody got hurt, you know, so why would, if, you know, what could have been done to prevent that? A lot of times it comes into, you know, with, with something associated with the product itself. Anyway, so ultimately, you know, when it, when you get the, the, the short answer is that it's really both. It's the employer and the supplier. Essentially, that's going to be one way or another held responsible. And I'm not a lawyer. I can't, I can't say. <laughs> no worries. I don't think anybody, I don't think we have any lawyers in our group. I don't know if anybody practices on the side, but I don't, I don't think we do. <laughs> a couple of things about, you know, if someone was going to get started in robotics, like you mentioned, you know, like 88, I think, percent of the companies are going to be involved in robotics soon. How does somebody get started? Uh, can you find the, the RIA? Is that free to attain that? How do they get started in the robotics? Yeah, so so those standards organization, be it ISO, IAC, ANSI, RIA, they're com- comprised of volunteers. They're subcommittees and, and representatives. They're independent private organizations that just gather representatives from from industry, you know, from John Deere, Honda, GM, uh, from the robot suppliers, Fanuc, ABB, um, they'll, they'll all kind of get together. Insurance companies, there'll be a number of integrators, you know, anybody, and they all get together and they argue, you know, they basically take what the current standard is. They look at how it failed industry. Revisions of standards are essentially called, they're written in blood. So they'll find some instance where some issue happened. So maybe somebody was compliant to the standard, but somehow it failed. So revisions become, you know, a key part of this. Uh, New technology and stuff get, get adopted. How do you, you know, how do you address and provide guidance? So they, they make their money by just selling publications. So no, they're not free. You know, some are several hundred dollars and whatnot. They can be voluminous. A typical machine safety expert has roughly a thousand pages of standards, you know, in their library that, you know, much like a law library, you, you know it pretty damn well, but um, you not know it word for word, but you know the important parts word for word, but you know for sure where to go get the information where the guidance is required. So that's why about 80% of these type of applications are done externally. Most companies don't do their own, even machine integration themselves. So they go out to companies, integrators like IMS. You know, most of the, the, our companies, our customers don't do anything internally. They rely on us. But yeah, you'd have to buy the standards. And just buying them doesn't make you, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta use them, you gotta apply them, you gotta read them, you gotta associate them with real life apps. And that's really where the the expertise comes in. I think we have time for one more question. I have a a comment. Uh, Explain more about guarding and cobots. We have some upper management that believe a cobot is completely safe and does not require anything special for an employee to be working around them. Yeah. So that's the assumption and that's the intent. So, you know, part of what was attempted here was the removal of guarding to provide access and whatnot. By and large, that's that's true, but at the same time, there's a there is 
you, you regardless of whether it's a cobot or regular you know robot the answer to that is always what did the risk assessment tell you how are people using this machine what type of products are this is this cobot you know handling moving around you know whatnot if you do a risk assessment and all of the hazard task combinations come out to a risk estimation that was an acceptable level. And it doesn't necessarily have to be low or negligible or something. You could, you could fully accept a medium or high risk and just go, hey, it's just a dangerous thing and I'm going to layer on other training or policies, procedures, something like that. The important part of it is that you've documented all of that stuff. I would highly not recommend throwing a cope need to do anything in here. That's how you can get into you know, elements of negligence, you know, that making that assumption that ah, I don't need to do anything. At a minimum, do the risk assessment, document the risk, document your decisions to accept what was the risk assessment told you. And if you accept all of it, hey, there's nothing more I need to go do. It's highly unlikely, but you're probably going to find something. I probably want to have a rule, policy, maybe not everybody's allowed to go in there. Maybe it's only the trained people and I got to keep track of who was trained and who's not. And then now I've got some authorization and can access control that I might want to implement, you know, here as well. So you can't go down that path, but it's probably best to be covered in that regard. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, that's a great answer. Well, with that, I think we've covered all the questions that I saw come okay. through. Great. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.